Welcome to our podcast, Bad, it's all about crime, brought to you by Bad Sydney Crime Writers Festival and the City of Sydney. I'm Suzanne Leal. And I'm Andy Muir. And each month we'll be exploring the big questions in crime and crime writing. Subscribe to our podcast, then jump onto the Bad All About Crime book club page on Facebook to be part of the conversation. And thanks for listening. Welcome to the Bad All About Crime podcast. I'm Andy Muir. The episode you're about to hear is a presentation from the 2021 Bad Sydney Crime Writers Festival. The Bad Sydney Crime Writers Festival is on again soon from the 8th to the 10th of September in Sydney. Go to www.badsydney.com to find out more. Uh, good morning, everyone. Welcome to this session at the uh, ba- uh, Bad Sydney Crime Writers Festival. Uh, the premise of today's talk, the proposition uh, that we're putting is that Australia is a crime scene. Uh, I'd like to begin by acknowledging that we're on Gadigal land, always was, always will be Gadigal country, and I pay my respects to the elders, past, present, um, and their emerging leaders as well. Uh, my name is Daniel Browning. I'm the presenter of the art show on ABC Radio National and uh, editor Indigenous Radio at the ABC. Uh, please, um, I want to introduce now the panel. Melissa Lukashenko joins us uh, from Brisbane via Zoom, very wet Brisbane. Melissa Lukashenko, if you didn't know, is an acclaimed and award-winning Aboriginal writer of Guri and European heritage, widely published as an award-winning novelist, essayist and short story writer. Some recent work has appeared in The Moth, 50 True Stories, Mianjin, Griffith Review, The Saturday Paper, and Melissa's Griffith Review essay, Sinking Below Sight, Down and Out in Brisbane and Logan, won the 2013 Walkley Award for long-form journalism. Too Much Lip, the most recent novel, uh, won Australia's foremost literary prize, the Miles Franklin, in 2019. Please welcome Melissa Lukashenko. Barbara Barongal, woman of the Darug Nation, Julie Jansen is a novelist, playwright, artist and poet. She was co-recipient of the Ujuru Nunakal Poetry Prize in 2016 and the Judith Wright Poetry Prize in 2019. Her novels are The Crocodile Hotel, Cyclops 2015 and Benevolence, long listed for the Nib Award in 2021. Her plays have been produced at Belvoir Street at the Sydney Opera House Studio at the Phoenix Theatre in Arizona, in Makassar in Indonesia at the Adelaide Festival Centre. Gunji's her play was nominated for an Augie Award and received a highly commended award from the Human Rights Commission. Julie lived in the Northern Territory in remote Aboriginal communities in her early years as a teacher, where she began writing plays and making giant puppets, masks and costumes. She now lives, still living in Maruya? Yeah. Yep. Uh, Julie lives in Maruya on the south coast, far south coast of New South Wales. Please welcome Julie Jansen. And Cody Bedford started as a cadet journalist. Um, Cody's going to... Um, Hand sub or give me signals when when it, when it whenever anything in this uh, in this biography doesn't make sense or isn't true. <laughs> Cody Bedford started as a cadet journalist uh, for SBS in two thousand eight, tick, uh, and then moved to the ABC as a researcher for documentary series Message Stick. Since leaving the ABC, Cody's co-founded the Indigenous arts group Cope Street Collective. Her credits include her short film Last Drink at Frieda's, a short horror film called Scout and also writing for the critically acclaimed ABC drama series Mystery Road and for Grace Beside Me. Uh, Cody is currently working on a feature film with funding from Screen Australia about the Yarrabah Brass Band. Uh, she received the Balnaves Fellowship in 2019 for the development of her play Cursed, which was staged uh, at Belvoir Street uh, in the 2020 season, uh, a great challenge during the pandemic. Please welcome Cody Bedford. I guess the, prov- the, the provocation, proposition, uh, the historical truth uh, the hypothesis that we're testing today is that Australia is a crime scene. And what I want to kind of um, enlarge or amplify is how First Nations writers prosecute the great crime, the lies, the whitewashing, the cover-up in the way we tell our stories. How do we avenge the crime in fiction and on screen? Um, Julie, we were talking in the green room about this whole idea of, and I have to thank uh, Robbie Thorpe, the... the um, the Aboriginal activist from, from Melbourne for this provocation, Australia as a crime scene. If you are interested in this concept of Australia as a crime scene, uh, I urge you to go to YouTube and, and, and look at the two videos that Robbie uh, has, has made about this, um, this, this proposition. Um, but Julie, we were talking in the green room about how perhaps this idea of Australia as the scene of many crimes, unprosecuted crimes, 
um, underpins everything we do? How does it underpin your writing and perhaps, you know, most recently the novel Benevolence? Okay, just before I start, I'll just say, Kwai Bija, Jamna Payala Dhyanawi, welcome to the land here in the Dara country of Bija. Okay, um, that's a really interesting question. Uh, I think it's a, a truth that the land was invaded, that uh, Australia was settled through uh, massacre and, and the taking of land and the dispossession of, of First Nations people. And I think it underpins nearly every First Nations writer, uh, whether they're, whatever they're writing, there's that underpinning that truth and wanting to write back against the colonial story, the great avalanche of, of whitewashing of Australian history, that, of leaving um, Indigenous people out of the story. And I think the need for me also is to put... Um, um, women, Indigenous women, in the centre of, of, of the response to those stories. Um, and um, that drives, you know, the plays that I write and also the, the, the novels that I write. And um, uh, and I'm finding as I'm getting older that my, uh, my Indigenous protagonist women are getting older. <laughs> and, uh, and the novel that I've just completed um, has, a, has an auntie who's uh, in her 50s. And um, the idea of her claiming back the story and the rights to tell a story about a dying river and uh, and uh, the history that she comes from of dispossession and and uh, and families massacred and land lost, yeah. So it underpins most Indigenous writing. And Melissa, in in relation to um, your novels, too much lip. Uh, there's a backpack full of cash in that very first chapter. And there's one, it's one of very many red herrings in the novel. But there's always a sense in your novels too of not even a subtext. There is a, a crime to be confronted. And you talked about not one crime, not a great crime, but many great crimes. Yeah, well, for Aboriginal people, I think it's probably true to say that uh, it's not a provocation at all. It's, it's just a simple um, fact of our lives that we don't uh, inhabit our countries in the way that we historically have. And I, I also think it's as accurate to say Australia is a crime as to say that Australia is a crime scene. You know, crime scene says that something has happened, you know, it's past tense, uh, more or less. Whereas if you say Australia is a crime, Australia is a, it, it has all sorts of implications for literature. Uh, and it, it has all sorts of implications for the idea of the dying race trope, you know, this idea that all, all we are is victims of a crime, all we are is survivors of a genocide, and we are victims of crimes, ongoing crimes, and we are victims of ongoing genocides. But I think as I mature as a writer, while I want to keep that truth very much central to my work, I also want to flesh it out in... in most of my work is about uh, illuminating our lives and our possibilities. Uh, so, for instance, in, in my forthcoming novel, uh, it's very much about the truth of colonial history in southeast Queensland, you know, the, the terrible truths, but it's also about potential and ambition and entrepreneurship and love of Aboriginal people, both in the current era and back in, even in the colonial era. So uh, I think we, we're shifting from a, we're shifting from a historical silence to a historical half truth maybe. And I think truth heals, but partial truths don't. So it's important to not limit ourselves to a doom and gloom and dying race narrative. I don't know, that's a fairly waffly answer to your oh, question. Oh, love it. Australia is a crime. So, Cody, in, in terms of writing for screen, which is what you do um, for the most part, um, but also the play Cursed, um, was there a great crime you were trying to unravel or unpick or unpack in Cursed? Um, that's a very good question. Uh, I come from Western Australia and our sort of, view of on history like i'll be completely honest blackfellas over there celebrate australia day because we don't know what the origins of that were east coast blackfellas are completely different to us it's like comparing russia with france um so we just 
in terms of his history and the history there, the in terms of white people getting there first, the Dutch got there first and shipwrecked and just murdered the hell out of each other. Um, and I wanted to explore that because that was kind of the first contact of contact with blackfellas over there in, in Geraldton, Yamaji country. Um, so uh, the Batavia, that's that story. It's so, so dark dark and violent and like probably the biggest massacre on this in in this country and no one really knows about it. So I wanted to tell that story through the um, sort of the uh, view of just an, a, a family, well, my family, which was very multicultural um, and sort of, yeah, getting of sort of relating history with mental illness as well and and what Australia does is like not tell the truth as Melissa says um but in any work I do on the screen screen is very I think we're coming into such a wonderful age of storytelling in terms of Indigenous filmmakers really taking ownership of Australian history and truth-telling. And I've just come off a show uh, with Warwick Thornton. We're telling the story of, uh, on this show, colonisation through vampires, as you do. It's It's quite amazing and I think it has the potential to reach more people because it is sort of set in this genre world um so we're we're making comments through genre through characters um and hopefully i've always been passionate that art can can sort of reach people that you never thought could happen before julie any vampires in 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 your plays um, or novels and why not but opening up that that idea of um, going to different genres, and I'm sure um, Melissa will be the same, is it's a really interesting challenge to take on these stories you want to tell about what happened to this country, but to do it in a different genre form. And the the, the idea of Warwick Thornton doing the, the vampire film or, you know, or the, was the, the hairy man also was on, on TV. Well, that's why I decided to do the genre of crime. I'm, I decided, look, will I write another kind of worthy kind of, you know, novel about what happened to Aboriginal people, whether it was... It, a contemporary or a historical novel, or will I actually kind of grab the genre of crime in order to bring in a bigger audience to actually want to engage in that story? And also as writers, you know, you get bored to death if you keep writing the same thing again and again and again. So the idea of challenging yourself with a different genre is, um, is, is, is a great challenge. Really, it's quite enjoyable, actually, even though you're writing things that are often extremely grim, but often with um, Indigenous writers is a good dose of 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 dark humour there, which is at the under, you know, underlines a lot of the, the writing that is done. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Um, I mean, with this vampire show, Warwick's concept was uh, when Captain Cook came over or the first fleet came over, there were 11 vials of smallpox on the ships, which I don't know why that's not taught. Uh, why would they have the smallpox? We have turned that into 11 vampires on the ships and um, completely constructed this show around that concept. And I just think that is such an amazing comment on history and the true history of Australia, even though it does feature vampires. Um, we are making a huge comment on colonisation and I think people will recognise that. When um, Catherine approached me to present this uh, or to kind of help curate the First Nations program here at the uh, Crime Writers Festival, I, I came up with this idea, Melissa, of Australia as a crime scene because I felt that this needed, this could be a context in which other conversations might happen with First Nations writers about this idea of crime as a genre. Um, so it's a dealing with the past and a reckoning with the past. In all your novels, there is a reckoning, uh, particularly in Too Much Lip, mm-hmm. and this story of, you know, of, of the theft of land, but always always written locally from a local perspective mm. and those animate things in the, in the sky, the birds, the, the country's alive with story mm. and the, the landscape is haunted. Mm. So that's always been, I think, an important part of, part of the storytelling, the t- stories that you tell, which come from where I come from, mm. um, the landscape being haunted. Mm. Yeah, well... Um you know, Australia is a constellation of crime scenes and it hasn't even begun to really think about that seriously, I think. Um, 
there's an archaeologist in Queensland here, Lindley Wallace, who has an ARC grant for a large uh, research project, I think focusing on native police, the, the, um, the death squads of colonial Queensland. Uh, it might, might, the research project may be a bit bigger than that, I'm not sure. And Lindley um, writes and argues that uh, on the Queensland frontier, the number of people killed, mostly Aboriginal, but also I think including um, white casualties, is greater than the number of Australians who died in World War One. She has a figure of around 100,000 deaths or killings. And so I think an, another interesting question that leads on from the idea of Australia as a crime scene is what does it mean to Australia to have covered that up? You know, for us as blackfellas, it's it's just sheer hypocrisy and, and opportunism and, and feeds into our understanding of the colony as a, a place of, um, you know, as an amoral place uh, where we don't matter and our voices don't matter and our trauma is, you know, pretty much ignored, overlooked and ignored. And But, you know, if you think, if you imagine that modern Germany had completely ignored the Holocaust, right? and it wasn't taught in schools except possibly around the margins a little bit, that there were virtually no memorials to the Holocaust and that there was a substantial Jewish population still living in Germany today that had to accept that as the ground rock of their existence. Then you're getting somewhere close to understanding what the Uluru Statement calls the torment of our powerlessness. No, I don't feel powerless. I feel very powerful because I can tell the truth. Um, but, I, yeah, I think it's rather than look at us as the dispossessed, which we know all about, what does it say about Australia and what does it imply for Australia as a political entity and as a nation to have this huge lie at its heart? I think that's a really interesting question as well. Mm. Now, Julie, you talked about your your own in in terms of your own biography, your awakening to the to the great lie or uh, to the cover up. What what happened when you were awakened when uh, you went to Burke? When I was uh, quite young and I finished at university, I went to um, I went to live out in Burke. I was only uh, twenty two. I had a little child. I was a single mum, and I went to work on an Aboriginal housing project. I don't know how much work I did. I had a little child, for heaven's sakes, but. Um, when I went out there and started um, spending a lot of time on the Burke Reserve, and there were 400 people living on the Burke Reserve under pieces of tin with one tap and three toilets. And uh, I'd grown up in uh, Baronia Park, just uh, uh, not far from the Lane Cove River. And um, even though our family hid their Aboriginality, we'd grown up very much, you know, following dad, you know, fishing, gathering oysters, you know, being a lot like dad. But when I went out there and I saw the grim truth of children with diarrhoea running down their legs and, and the starvation and poverty and the shocking racism in the early 70s. And it was a huge wake-up call for me. And I just kind of knew then that I could never do anything else for the rest of my life but to call out this great crime in Australia because I, growing up in Sydney, you kind of didn't notice what was happening in, in the rest of the country. And after I'd spent time in Burke, um, I went out to live in the uh, Northern Territory and I went to live in Minyeri, which is a little cattle station, which is now an Aboriginal-owned cattle station, Hodgson Downs Cattle Station. And after a less than a year living in that little tiny community where there's 400 people living on a cattle station which was owned by a Hong Kong consortium, I was told by one of the old elders that that was the site of a 1929 massacre and was told in detail about how the men had been rounded up and chained and made to chop wood and then they were all shot and the wood was used to, to, to burn the men and the women were chased down on horseback and killed with sticks so as not to waste the bullets. Mm. And this story being told to a young teacher living in a, 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 a little caravan, teaching in a caravan school, it's, it's kind of the wake up that you just kind of go, well, this for the rest of your life, these stories underpin the way you see this country. And even now when I'm writing a book about crime, about the crime of the, the killing of the Darling River, it all interconnects because the, the, the crimes of taking water are just as significant as the crimes of, of shooting people or bashing them with sticks because 
now in Miniri, they're about to be fracked with, with our money, taxpayer money, 50, what is it, $500 million going towards fracking all over the country. Miniri, that little tiny community of 400 people that I taught, I see the faces of those elders of now, those children on the internet begging for us to stand up and say no fracking in these little communities. They frack that billabong, that community is completely dead. It's gone. And so the crime just goes on and on and on. And it's a wonder most Indigenous people can even get up in the morning because it's so painful. Yeah. And you talk about the overriding burden um, in, in, in writing and we had a conversation outside about benevolence, uh, your novel, um, it's the central, the great crime in benevolence. What is that crime that underpins that whole story? Well, I could say the falsifying of that crime is a, is a pretty bad crime as well. Uh, um, the, the crime is the taking of the land and dispossession of people so so utterly uh, that, you know, I've got ancestors who lived along the um, South Creek. South Creek is a creek that runs out of um, near Windsor, yeah, Wilberforce, and it was the fresh water. It's called Wayanamata. It's the mother creek, the mother creek. You need fresh water to live. If you don't have any fresh water to drink, ask the people in Manindi or Wilcania what happens when the Darling River no, no longer flows. If you have no water, um, you know, you're going to die. And that river, um, that freshwater river that my ancestors lived on, um, a, a man set up a tannery there and started tanning the, the skins of cattle and poison the water and then there was a, a typhoid plague that came, went down the creek and uh, my great great um, uncles and aunties died of typhoid along that along that creek and so um, it's like it's the ongoing waves of crime it's not just one crime oh it's over now let's get over it let's not talk about that now and it, it's it's tragic because it does underpin the writing that you do but also you want people to read your books, and I'm sure Melissa and Cody will agree with this too, there has to be a way of allowing people in. You can't just constantly be saying this is a crime and it's all terrible and you're awful and we're great. I mean, humanity is, is complex, whether people are of Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander heritage or they're French or Italian or German. We, we, we're, all, we're all human beings and all of us are capable of great crimes. So it's a real juggling act being a writer, trying to be fair to humanity. <laughs> Cody, is that a challenge, being fair to humanity? I mean, we do tell we, our dark humour is, is our way of kind of navigating this terrain that we have to as blackfellas. But, you know, we tell, we tell stories. We're funny people. We have a, we have a great sense of humour. Melissa's novels are hilarious. Um, Cursed was pretty funny. Um, humour is a way of getting through and of, of kind of reinscribing re our humanity. I... I absolutely won't do anything without writing comedy in it because that's just who we are as a people. This is how it comes down to how we've survived mentally, physically, emotionally, uh, bonding each other through, well, yeah, let's make it funny, you know. Um, so even when I'm writing something like Mystery Road, I try to look for those very lighter moments in um, uh, sort of, as a way of truth because that's just how we are. I'm a very character-driven writer and uh, when I go into writers' rooms, um, of course, my strongest thing is commenting on uh, the Aboriginal characters, um, but I always try and make them very, well, depending, you know, I do a lot of character psychology work um, and sort of push uh, those characters into also having those lighter moments because we're not all miserable people, are we? <laughs> no. Yeah, exactly. That's been a kind of big saying in our family. Like if you, if we don't laugh, we cry. And um, I was actually having that exact same conversation the other day with a, a Jewish writer um, who shares like he's like, well, yeah, we have the humour as well. So um, I love that. It's a coping mechanism. It's very dark, though. It's very gallows humour. Mm. And that, that great crime, the Batavia, when the Dutch ship was wrecked, uh, came ashore, came a cropper just off, the, off, Yamaji, off Yamaji country? Yep. Well, in the, in the uh, 18th century. Yes. Oh, 17th century. 1600s, yep. yep. yeah. yeah. And what happened there? I mean, just for, for some of us on the East Coast who don't know what happened over there on the Batavia, I mean, it's a great 
oh, story. Absolutely insane. White <laughs> fellas just gone mad. That's what I call it. Um, they basically uh, got cheeky and tried to drive the ship faster to Indonesia and um, wrecked it off this, these islands. And um, I don't know. I don't know if it was because it was a curse. I think that's the original curse of that land. Um, but they basically uh, a few people got greedy. It was like all the power, capitalism, getting, oh, I want this. No, make those survivors go over there. Get the strongest men off the land and um, divide and conquer. It was total Lord of the Flies on a hundred times a hundred. So um, it Ended up, I can't remember. I, it, I should know. But they this cannibalized. One. They cannibalized each other. Yeah, didn't they? cannibalized. <laughs> the cannibalism. Women and children murdered. There was so many people was, murdered. It was basically a blood island. And um, when the captain, because he so heroically went off to get help, um, when he came back, he just found everyone dead, basically, except the uh, well, they had uh, a couple of big guys that overcame the the monsters um but one of what they did they punished them uh hung some of the like perpetrators but another what they did to like some of the lieutenants is sent them off to Geraldton to um yeah go live on this island forever that was their punishment and they would have been the first white fellas um in the country and there's stories from around there about red-headed little Blackfellas running around there and being sighted after that event. So um, that is, it's just fascinating to me. I think it's a good film. I'll get Russell Crowe had the rights to it, so I'll get it off him. <laughs> <laughs> if you're listening, Russell. Uh, I don't know whether I mentioned this. I, I, we were talking about it off air, and that was off air before before we started. Um, a quote from Thomas Carlyle, which is outside um, outside the State Library of New South Wales here. And he says in this book, the Scottish historian, um, the guy who conceived of the great man uh, theory I've, I've just learned, thanks, Julie, and thanks, Melissa. Tom, Thomas Carlyle said, in books lies the soul of the whole past time, the articulate, audible voice of the past. How important is it to articulate the voice of the past? Um, Melissa, I know we're talking about Australia as a, as a contemporary um, kind of um, crime scene or a crime in, in and of itself. Hmm. But that I hear the articulate, audible voice of the past in your novels. I mean, maybe that's my own bias. Well, thank you. And it would be nice to think so, um, to think that sitting here in Maguncan on Yuggera land that I could tap into those past voices. But um, I, I think that might be a conceit from if as an author if I thought I could do that and so with my novel that I've just um, written the first draft of as we were saying before set in 1855 Brisbane one of the reasons I said it in 1855 was because I thought it was beyond my scope as a an author and as an Aboriginal person to reach back into uh, any further back into history into pre-contact time uh, I think it's important to know your limitations as a writer and uh, and to understand the way that Aboriginal texts are received here and overseas. Um, as I was saying to you before, I've got 10,000 words of notes to feed into and incorporate into my first draft of this novel. And that's because every single historical fact is gonna be gone over with a fine tooth comb by the enemies of truth telling, you know, by the forces of conservatism. Uh, I won't name them, I don't need to name them, but uh, even though it's a novel, we are doing some of the work of historians. Um, and I don't pretend to be a historian, but it's it's incredibly important to get those facts right if we're going to try and uh, bring the past to life uh, for a, a mainstream audience. Um, yeah, I mean, you you, wrote, you used the word revenge before Daniel um, earlier okay. in the conversation, and and that's an interesting thing too. I mean, I had a strange experience about um, must be going on for three years ago now. I was uh, in bed one morning, and I woke from a dream, and I'm not a particularly spiritual person. I've had a few little experiences, like most of us have, 
But in the dream, I f- it felt like a visitation. And I had thought that I was I was going to write this story, talk about what happened in colonial Brisbane and say, you know, all these terrible things happened, but we've survived and we thrive and life goes on. And this is a love story set in that era. And I had this dream and it really felt like a visitation from the ancestors who said, you have to write about love, that this has to be a story not just of a romance between a man and a woman, but something that embodies and works towards love. And, you know, my radical political friends will probably be wanting to have my guts for garters to hear me say this, and it really took me aback. But I, it changed my focus. And so I thought what I have to do is to show it could have been different, okay, um, to show what happened but also to point to the fact that it wasn't inevitable. You know? um, there could have been a... There could have been a more just um, colonisation of Australia if colonisation was inevitable. Uh, it could have been done on different terms, and that's part of what I'm writing about. And, yeah, that, Julie, we, we were talking about that too, about, you know, this our story, our national story, if we are a representation of a national story, it's impossible without love. Yeah. We talk about crime and crimes against humanity, genocide, in, invasion, dispossession, but... There is this other subtext, which is our story is also underwritten by love. Yes. Well, I mean, we were talking earlier and just saying, well, you know, we are the colour we are because there's, there have been relationships in, in our complex. histories. It's complex. It's but complex. That's, that's one you know, you've got the story, white grandfather or the, the white story. grandma or yeah. the, you know, you know, that our families are complex. You know, my, my mum's of English heritage and... Oh, constant struggle. My mother says, if I'd known he was Aboriginal, I would never have married him. And I just kind of go, Mum, you know, I just, how do you think that makes me feel, you know? But, uh, you know, she's 94 now. It's too late to, to kind you of. Can't undo that. Can't now. undo that. But um, I was interested in what Melissa was saying about the, um, the notion of taking um, a true history and historical facts and getting them absolutely correct because they'll be, uh, you know, under the lens. And, and I can uh, agree with what she's saying. But I'm writing um, a sequel now to, um, to Benevolence uh, called um, The Compassion. And I've decided to just throw the history out the window. And um, I've, it's kind of been extremely liberating for me to do that. While it's, I have the, the bones of the history, um, it's almost like I want to rewrite the history in the way that, that I want to see it. So it becomes a rather than historical fiction, it becomes a, a piece of fiction based vaguely on history. And it's much more freeing to write that kind of story with an Aboriginal heroine right in the middle of it, my very own female kind of, you know, Captain Thunderbolt or something in the middle of it. And um and it can be quite liberating sometimes to transgress the genre, the, the the kind of shackles of historical fiction, and to and to let yourself free. Whether or not I'm successful with that, but but the sound of it by doing the, uh, you know, the uh, the smallpox as as vampires is another way of, of of transgressing that genre. Yeah, Cody, speculative fiction. I mean, is is a way of kind of we, we want to talk in in broad terms about like vampires and you know that kind of um, fictional world. But speculative fiction, speculative fiction is a way of kind of dealing with confronting this question of Australia as a crime scene, of not dealing with every single historical fact, but of actually speculating about what could have happened, what might have happened if things had been had been done differently. Oh yeah, for sure. And I just love positioning, uh, like putting the black lens over it and making like blackfellas vampire hunters like i love that i gives me strength as a person who grew up the reason i'm a screenwriter is because of buffy i wanted to be buffy and um as a so it's a dream come true not only to write a vampire genre series but a vampire genre series with blackfellas actually saying something and whenever i take a piece of work, I, I want to make sure it says something, even if it's in a big genre, ridiculous world where I had to actually research, do vampires drink beer? I would just, <laughs> like, it's just, yeah, it's just insane. I've also um, wrote a play at a, that I <laughs> went to Melbourne Fringe Festival and had, like, two people in the audience every night. It was amazingly packed out. But it was um 
with the Cope Street Collective, it was about blackfellas in space. We wrote um, a story about blackfellas colonising space because why not? Um, uh, we And it was so much fun. It was a comedy and um, unfortunately like two people saw it and they loved it. The reviews <laughs> were glowing. Um, it was a lot of fun. But even just doing it through that, I just I want to see that on screen, like blackfellas in space because, you know, we put our people front and centre. It says something automatically. Um, writing, even writing Mystery Road, which at its core is a mystery crime drama and formulating that in a writer's room, we always go... We want three crimes in this series to explore the historical crime, which in the first series was um, Judy Davis's uh, found out she, there was a massacre on her um, big rich station, um, and like then the crime from ten years ago, and then the the current crime, which brings um, very handsome Aaron Pedersen into town and his cow with his cowboy hat and his tight jeans. So we were like. <laughs> How do we, um, yeah, we we basically formulated or structured the series in that way. But what that does is, like, shows that these effects of, like, that first crime, the massacre, still affects people today. Um, I recently saw one of my best friends, Alan Clark, he directed the Bowerville documentary, which recently filmed, uh, recently screened at the Sydney Film Festival. I don't think a white director would ever do this, but a black, uh, he was a black, he's from Burke, he's a black fella. Um, he started the documentary through the perspective of the kids in Barrowville, the current day kids who'd never met these Barrowville kids that went missing. Mm. And it showed like that crime that happened oh, 10, 20 years ago. Oh, sorry, I forget the exact time. Still affects the generation today that never, ever, um, it never, they never met the people, but they still carry the scars. And I find that so fucking fascinating. Sorry, I swore. Um, I find that fascinating because it really shows that we really haven't dealt with Australia's original crime and that's the kind of thing I want to explore in art and screen. I, I just love doing that because we're still trying to find our identity as Australians and it's not just Blackfella history, it's our history. That's what, something I'm really passionate about, that it's mm -hmm. all of our history. It's This is what brought us together, so let's deal with it. Yeah. And I just want to say something about that Barrowville situation because I, I was up in Barrowville um, soon after that crime happened but and and the people there of Barrowville what was so what is still so painful of the 30 years is that the man who did it used to go down to the reserve where people were living and hang out the window with a shotgun and swear at people and say and I got away with it and you know and f the lot of you I, I just this blatant racist cruelty that went on for so long so it's a very complex story yeah yeah, well, the failure to investigate is a crime, you know, delayed. We talk about justice. D delayed is justice denied. And this whole idea of justice too, Melissa, is a, is a, is a theme, the kind of always in the background. I w wouldn't say subtext, but justice, this idea of what justice is. And I'm not talking about a legal concept here. I'm talking about the idea of justice as we might uh, anticipate it. D do you think about that term? Justice. I'm, I'm removing all kind of removing removing it from the statute books. The idea of justice. It, it, does it play out in your mind when you when you're writing, say, your novels? Yeah, very much, very much, and not just in writing novels, but in, in everyday life, Daniel. And um, you know, anyone that's got a, even a basic grasp of Aboriginal law knows that it's founded in justice and. Uh, and compassion and everyone having a place and everyone having a role in society. You know, I, I always remember Auntie Mary Graham, Convermary Mary Elder, saying to me in 1998, uh, around the time I first got to know her, and she's, I was, I think I'd written, I'd just published my first book, I think, and she said, Melissa, what you need to understand is when the colonists came, the worst thing they did wasn't, stealing the land and it wasn't 
the killings and the rapes, and it wasn't even the removal of our children. The worst thing they did is that they brought with them this idea that life is about competition and survival, you know, and that has resonated with me really strongly over the years that material things, not that land is just material, of course, but material loss is one thing and the loss of family and the loss of life is one thing, but the loss of a an understanding of the world, she was saying that that's one of the most powerful colonising tools, you know, this idea that life was about struggle and fighting the land and chaining people up and whipping people into submission rather than living together as brothers and sisters in peace, you know, and, and creating the world's first democracy and creating diplomacy between nations. So when I think about justice, I, I do actually think about laws. I think about the rule of law, but it's the rule of Aboriginal law. You know, and when people want to argue the toss with me about colonisation, I just say to them, you, you either believe in the rule of law or you don't, you know. And if you believe in the rule of law, then there have been great wrongs and those great wrongs have consequences and we are all still living with them. As Cody said, this isn't our history. This is Australia's history. You know, and if you're talking about foundation myths, you know, what's more powerful than a, a white bloke going back to the scene of his crime, hanging a shotgun out the side of his car and telling the blackfellas that they can get fucked because he got away with it? You know, how's that for a perfect foundation myth of Australia? Or Cody's, you know, island full of cannibals and murderers turning on each other um, offshore and not having set foot on Yamaji land yet. I mean, that's just the most perfect encapsulation of the colonial mindset that I've ever heard. But Australia doesn't know that these are their foundation myths. They think their foundation myths are, you know, Ned Kelly or the Anzacs or something a little bit more palatable. And the job of all of us is to, to, is to make different and new foundation myths founded on actual justice. And this whole concept too, Julie, of truth-telling and, you know, Melissa, Melissa described how the, the increasingly the work of fiction is doing the work of history or, you know, maybe even politics. So that idea of, of, of truth-telling, when you sit down to write your novels, are you, tr are you telling some kind of truth? I also um, want to write back against all the whitewashing of, of Indigenous history in this country. And the, the very fashionable recent kind of finding by a lot of mainstream non-Aboriginal writers suddenly discovered Aboriginal people are part of Australian history. So we'd better throw in a couple of those characters and make them really vivid, steal a few stories, and, uh, you know, the book will sell a lot of copies. And it's kind of now kind of fashionable to even have Aboriginal people speak, for God's sake, even in language. My good God, didn't know they could speak. Now, look, I'm sounding really cynical, but I do get extremely annoyed at the sudden kind of discovery of, of Aboriginal characters when there are, you know, sometimes people say, oh, oh, Indigenous writers, so easy for you to get published. Oh, God, I wish that was true. You know, it is, it, you know, I... My poor husband has to listen to me whinge all the time. It is, it's extremely difficult as it is for any, any person, any person starting out. But the idea of stories taken and, um, and used without permissions, without respect, without some kind of, of reaching out and following a protocol which everyone thought was a done and dusted idea years ago, it just seems to be washed away and uh, that brings tears to my eyes so it's a modicum of respect in writing a story about the darling river i went on a long trip and spent quite a lot of time talking to elders along the darling river because i haven't lived there for a very long time and um and auntie evelyn bates spent a lot of time with me at menindi talking about um her stories in return for which she was paid for spending the time with me and and i asked permissions of other elders from maury and and um don't assume for a minute that I have a right as an Indigenous person from Sydney to, to take anyone else's stories, but that rather it has to be done in a spirit of, of, of cooperation and respect and protocols. And um, I, I just despair that it seems to be like, you know, that was 10 years ago, Julie. Forget about that now. We've moved on. 
Cody, this is happening increasingly in in film, in screen, in film. You know, these all of a sudden black characters are appearing, and you know, you, you you're lucky enough to be in a writers' room and and, and kind of animate black fellow characters. I don't know. I I mean, it's interesting because I, as an indigenous woman, I get often get called into writers' rooms um, because there's an indigenous character, and I'm like. <laughs> I'm a writer. I'm so much more than that. But yeah. at the same time, I'm pitching these Aboriginal characters because I want representation. So it was a it's a very weird line that I walk. Um, but at the, at the same time, I've had white writers say to me, like, in confidence, oh, so easy for you to get work, isn't it? And I'm like, well, you had your time. <laughs> you had how many years in film and TV? Just because we're taking ownership of our stories now, which I'm very proud of. Um, for example, like this vampire show, I'll keep banging on because I only just come off set. It's our last day of shoot today. So it's, and it's airing in 15 days. <laughs> um, this vampire show is made by an American network. And it was the first time I've been in an all black room. It was amazing. Like they, the Americans got it. They got it, that they let me, as I became the head writer of that show and Warwick, they just let us write authentic, chuck in slang. I tell you what, I've worked with the ABC on several projects. I always get told to take my blackfellas slang out because they say whitefellas will not get that. You're writing for a white audience. The Americans got it. They're like, you can write whatever you want. Um, and it just brings such an authenticity and it brings such pride to me. And I know that Blackfellas are going to be really proud of that show, even if it doesn't go to a second series, even if they probably won't see it because it's on an American network. Um, but what we're showcasing to the world is our history. And Australians have this funny thing where if you make it overseas, then they'll be proud of you, you know? Yes. So hopefully that'll happen. <laughs> Um, but, yeah, it's interesting, like, pitching black shows to Australian networks is actually really hard. Um, for me personally, I've been in a screenwriter for, uh, well, in this industry for a good 10 years now, and it's really hard because they're like, well, we can't sell this. Um, I've never got a, I've, I'm good at what I do. I'm always working. I've never got an offer from a channel seven or channel nine show um it's always abc and sbs and i'm very proud to work alongside abc and sbs thank god we have them because they're the ones doing australian drama but um it's also hard because you know uh at the end there's more white executives or non-indigenous executives sort of gatekeeping the stories and um that for me isn't is the next fight it's getting better though i'm i'm pretty happy with the way things are going because we are taking ownership of the stories and finally we're sort of shifting the sort of lens to the black lens and like people like sally riley who's the head of fiction at abc um she's a radgery woman so um she gets it she brought redfern now to um mainstream ABC, that show was the first Aboriginal show written, directed, produced by Aboriginal people and it changed the game because it got us in the ma mainstream. So, yeah, we're hot right now and I'm taking the money, so thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Melissa's going with Harper, Harper Via, the same as I am. Just Harper Collins, Melissa? No. 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 UQP. Um, yeah, I think it's – I think the um, – Press release has gone out that I'm my novel Eden Glassie is coming out with UQP um, either next year or, or the year after. And uh, to it. yeah, yeah, I, I'm pretty proud of it um, at first draft stage, Daniel. So I'm. Uh, I'm and that's ten thousand page. Ten thousand. How many? How many? How many pages of notes have you got? I've got ten thousand words of words. dot points that's to notes to uh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, so it's a big project, but. Um, you know, it's important culturally. It's important as an artist and just as a human being, as a, a citizen of the world, to to try and um, to try and aim for something a bit 
mm, transformative, I don't know, to, to try and tell the truth and to tell it in a way that's compelling and beautiful and which helps. Love that. Now, just harking back to what Cody said about, you know, this kind of sense of, you know, black Americans know how to do it or black, you know, how the, the, the international networks know how to do this. When you're writing um, for, um, you know, that kind of having in your mind's eye, Melissa, that that audience, that that um, reader, the general reader, whoever that is, that person that you look to when you're writing or the person you think of when you're writing, mm. how do you interpret, you know, what's happened here the great crime, in essence, that I've been talking about, all the great crimes. How do you interpret that for international audiences? Someone who doesn't know uh, anything about Australian history or about us as blackfellas. You think about that? I don't think I've ever drawn much of a distinction, Daniel, because um, non-Aboriginal people here do know so little about us and so little about our history and, and about our contemporary life as well, you know, um, the crimes, the crimes didn't stop in 1788. You know, Oxley, John Oxley, first saw the uh, the Maywa, the Brisbane River, in 1823. He named it the Brisbane River in 1824, and in 1825 is when um, the first Europeans came and started living on the Brisbane River. But the uh, the impacts of that colonisation are in my cousin's family today you know they're in they're in her poverty they're in her children being called niggers and bones at school and not having any recourse except to ignore it and suffer you know that indignity or to um, lash out and get expelled and be set on a treadmill towards prison all these things all the all the homelessness you know the domestic violence all these things uh, can be traced back very clearly to our dispossession, that's that's no secret at all um, to us. But I think it's it's just one of those things that it's easier not to think about if you're a white Australian living in suburbia or living on the river in an apartment, looking out, not knowing what happened there. So uh, no, I don't make a big distinction between writing for Australian audiences and overseas audience. All I say is the audience has to care about my characters. The audience has to be completely engrossed in the story of Mullinyan, the young Yugambeh boy, and his love, Nita, who's working for the Petrie family as a servant of a, a, a leading white family in Brisbane. They have to care. They have to know these people. And if they don't care about them and know them, then why would they care about the tragedies of their people? So that's the, the love, the love at the, at the core of eating glassy. That's the love story, but I, I think you, I might not have um, communicated properly what I meant about the the dream I had and the uh, mm. the kind of visitation. What um, that was much more than it being a love story between Mullinyan and Nita. That was that was about our law saying that every every living being matters, and that if I'm not writing to honour all life, then uh, I'm doing damage to our culture and our law. Mm. That that was what I took from the dream, and to say that I have to make something more potent than just just telling the truth of history. I had to do do more and go beyond that, and I hope I have. Understood, understood. Mm. Um, Julie, just quickly before we run out of time, I want to talk. We've talked about Eden Glassy, uh, Melissa's a forthcoming novel. This River of Bones, we talked, uh, you, you mentioned it, set on the Darling River to do with env great environmental crimes. Yeah, yeah. Um, because I lived on the Darling River when I was young, I have a real kind of heart place for the Darling River. And I go up there quite often, Michael and I drive up there. And um, seeing the, the crime of that river completely dry at one stage, being able to just stand in the river and there was nothing but some dying kangaroos on it. And you just think there's really something very, very wrong with this picture. Uh, the environmental degradation and the destruction and not the government not acknowledging climate change. And um, and that was why I decided to set a novel in, the, in that area, but also to honour all the aunts. And when Melissa talks about writing a story where uh, human beings love each other and, and, and being 
creating characters that are interconnected and are true families that we can believe in is really, really important. Otherwise, you haven't done your job as a novelist. And so creating a family that lives on the Darling River and cares about the river and political activists, but they've, you know, they've got Uncle Jack living with them who's 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 got schizophrenia. I had a brother who had schizophrenia, so that the notion of mental health coming into, into families, whether they're Aboriginal or non-Aboriginal families, and investigating the love still that can be in a family, even if somebody has an alcohol problem like my dad did or whatever, and, and loving people despite their, their faults and frailties. And it's a, you know, you could be writing about a Russian family. I mean, it's, it's, we're part of humanity. But for me to write a novel about um, climate change and political action became something that I, I just had to do. I had to, to write one book that it, it explained what I felt about what, what had happened to the Darling River. Yeah. There's also a death in custody. Yeah. In yeah, at the heart of it. At the heart of that story. And that's something, Melissa, we could, you know, spend, spend a whole other session talking about. In terms of unprosecuted crimes, we talked about Barraville. Um, you know, I worked on a, on a six-part podcast with Alan Clark, who's made the Barraville documentary about the death in custody of a young Aboriginal man in 1993 in Brisbane, a man called, a young man called Daniel York. Um, these crimes, you know, need to be explored. And if there is a crime, what is that crime? And ex really explicating that. Melissa, you've done a lot of work with Sisters Inside. And this idea of the prisons and, 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 and abolition and all those crimes that, you know, um, that are present, that, that, we, that we live with every day, that big, great crime and those many great crimes. But talk about a little bit about the work with Sisters Inside. It's always fascinating to me to know that this, there's this other side of you passionate about, about what happens to, to our women in, 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 in prison. Yeah, well, how long have you got? Um, I know. <laughs> yeah, there, there was a death in custody this week in um, Townsville, um, another fatality, not not an Aboriginal woman, but a Pacifica woman died in a cell in Townsville. And, uh, you know, prisons are places of great violence and they're really the, um, they're the, the places where government policies go to fail. You know, it's, it's the place where housing policy goes to die. Literally, it's the place where mental health policy goes to fail. It's the place where education policies go to fail and economic policies generally because poverty, you know, crime is born of poverty and of our dispossession. So, uh, yeah, 25 odd years ago, um, I went to a meeting, community meeting in West End in Brisbane and uh, a few of us sat around and my interest came because, um, you know, because I'm Aboriginal and because I'm a feminist and it was particularly because my brother spent, my, my oldest brother spent most of his life until the age of 50 in prison. Um, and that was because of his victimisation at the hands of my white father, who was extremely violent towards him. And that brother left the family at 15 in fear of his life. So uh, Sisters Inside works with women in prison who have committed offences against Australian law and uh, 99 times out of 100, those people are also victims uh, before they become offenders, and particularly in the case of Aboriginal women. You know, the, it's easier to say that Aboriginal woman pinched a car or, you know, stole something or, you know, ran off and didn't pay fines for years and so she has to go and sit in a cell to atone for that. But no one seems to think that it's important to atone for the fact that that woman's ancestors were murdered and that woman's um, parents or siblings or herself were taken by the Australian state in a genocidal policy of assimilation, you know. Um, people stand on our stolen land and call us thieves. That, that always makes me shake my head. Indeed. Fantastic. Well, can you please uh, join me in thanking Julie Jansen, Melissa Lukashenko and Cody Bedford and Australia is a crime scene. Thank you to Daniel. Fantastic work. Thank you. 
Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed that session from last year's Bad Sydney Crime Writers Festival, then join us this September, in person or online, for what will be another huge weekend of crime writing and crime writers at the 2022 festival. Go to the Bad Sydney website, sign up for the newsletter, and follow us on social media to be informed as soon as the 2022 program and the tickets are released. We hope to see you there, and make sure you come up and say hello. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the All About Crime podcast from Bad Sydney Crime Writers Festival. If you'd like to be part of the crime conversation, head over to Facebook and join our Bad All About Crime book club. The books featured in this episode are available from our online bookseller, partner Booktopia. You can find a direct link to the Booktopia Bad All About Crime page on this episode's show notes. If you love listening to All About Crime, please give us a rating and review in your favourite podcast app so other people can discover us too. The views, opinions and attitudes expressed in this episode of All About Crime are those of the participants and not those of Bad Sydney Crime Writers Festival. Until the next thrilling episode, keep reading and talking crime.